your favorite Grasslands PR team. This month we're back with another episode of The Best Bio. I'm Nicole. I'm Alan. And I'm Rachel. And uh, today's episode is all about why you should be birding all winter. Oh. Yeah. 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 Um, but first, uh, we have some Giving Tuesday news because, you know, it's that time of year where you're so thankful for podcasts that you give money to people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And who better to give your money to than your favorite Grasslands PR team? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we have a lot of ways to give this year. We have our merch store. We have our donor box. We have a Facebook fundraiser going on if you're a fundraiser kind of person. If you have Cash App on your phone, wow, you can just just search Grass and Groupies and you'll find us. Give us two bucks. Give us five bucks. Right now, we do have a generous donor actually doubling donations, so your $5 turns into $10. Whoa. Whoa. Nice. So, do they want to be named? I didn't ask. Okay. Well, we'll keep them anonymous. But Mysterious yeah. donor. Thank <laughs> you. Mysterious supporter. Anyway, thank you guys for all of your support yes. over the years. It helps us out a lot, and absolutely. our growth in the last year alone has been just absolutely insane. So uh, we're excited about the future, and uh, we are very grateful for those of you who are supporting us through it all. Absolutely. Now let's talk about some birds. 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 A lot of times when we talk about birds, we are thinking about summer birds. You know, we're excited for the tropical, colorful spectacles. We're excited for the singing the displays, the babies. Look, I get it. <laughs> There's a lot to love about summer birds. But winter changes everything yeah. for birds. The summer birds abandon us. <laughs> They're gone. But there's a lot of other birds that join us for the winter from the Arctic. Yes. And yes. the way that birds exist in the world is completely different. There's no leaves on the trees, so it makes it way easier to find them unless you're in a place with a ton of evergreens, I guess. That there are places like that that exist. Yes. Um, <laughs> but deciduously, it's gone. Birds, easy to stalk. There's new cooperation we see in birds, new behaviors, new coloration, in addition to that new roster. Um, a great example of how winter completely shifts bird behaviors comes from our wonderful red-winged blackbirds. Mm -hmm. One of the more common birds across the U.S., heavily associated with fields and grasslands and marshes. And all summer long, those males are defending territories and mates so extremely, they will spend more than a quarter of their daylight hours attacking things. <laughs> <laughs> that okay. includes other males, predators, even a stray horse that gets too close. And mm -hmm. they're like, all right, Buster, time for you to mosey on out of here. They'll attack people. They spend more than a quarter of daylight hours just attacking things. So they're extremely yeah. territorial. Wow. They Gotta hate yeah. other males. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they are very polygynous, so mm -hmm. they will have a lot of females in their territory. That's, you know, fine. But, like, you know, they're they're bullies. Mm -hmm. Winter changes things, mm. right? Okay? Because winter flocks of red-winged blackbirds specifically can be several million birds. So they drop all of that antagonistic behavior mm -hmm. and join up with members of their own species and other species. And those millions of birds will 
even if they disperse during the day, reform the flocks at night. Nice. So yeah. it's That's, a very different time. Every time I think of millions of birds in one place, like I just, I can't really picture it. Like it's such a amazing amount of animals in one area. Like, ugh, it's so weird. Yeah. It's uh. a true spectacle mm-hmm. getting to see those types of birds. If you live in this area, um, Quivira National Wildlife Refuge is a great place to see flocks of millions of blackbirds. Mm-hmm. Are these like, ooh, I wonder if these are like detectable on radar mm-hmm. for in sure. the same way that like bats are, you know, like bat colonies? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Uh, yeah, there's definitely uh, bird flocks detected on radar. It's very pronounced in migration. I don't know about, you know, winter bird flocks. I Just haven't specifically out. seen yeah. that, but I imagine it pops up on radar if there's that many of them. That's really nice. That's great that they're able to, you know, squash the beef and (laughs) exist millions of them all together as buddies. Well, not necessarily buddies, but, you know, not sworn enemies. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. It's encouraging. It Hmm. is encouraging. And, um, you know, it kind of just shows that cooperation has a, an important place in nature just as much as beating up all your rivals, you know? Like, and in winter, yeah. things are tough, and it's yeah. important to start cooperating to get through it all mm-hmm. together. Yes. Together yeah. we survive. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That is kind of interesting to think about, like, there's less food in winter, but they're in these giant flocks. Mm-hmm. So hmm. that actually brings up a great point because mm. I want to spend a minute talking about flocking behavior because that is one of the hallmarks of winter. Mm-hmm. A lot of species form flocks that otherwise do not at all during the summer. In fact, most birds don't form flocks in the summer, like period, full stop, um, and then completely switch to that sort of lifestyle. So what are the advantages, disadvantages, like criteria for forming flocks what do they do in flocks all day great questions um (laughs) i I do want to point out that um flocking behavior in birds has like a very wide range of how it you know uh comes across like it is most often a pretty flexible behavior you know sometimes a flock will just be a grouping of birds and as like the flock kind of moves through different territories like new birds will join in and old birds will fall off and it's like a pretty loose aggregate mm-hmm. in other bird species it can be like sort of a closed membership situation where <laughs> a flock gets together and they're like fighting off other intruders and like you have to earn your spot in the flock so pretty wide range there um The advantages of forming a flock are cooperative foraging. Mm. So yes, food can be limiting, but with more birds looking out for food, more opportunities to find food. Uh, It's also safer to be in a flock. So that's a great advantage. Obvious disadvantages uh, (laughs) include (laughs) competition for food because, you know, millions of birds Mm. hanging out. Um, That's why... A lot of those huge flocks, like the ones we just talked about, will disperse during the day and into smaller groups that will go out and forage in like smaller chunks. And then the giant aggregate will reform at night for roosting. Uh, Disadvantages also include disease. So it gives (laughs) more opportunities for diseases to spread. Uh, And also uh, it leads to more fighting because birds like to maintain personal space and Mm. also squabble over food and stuff. Uh, so the way that flocks form, uh, we can actually chart it (laughs) 
and find like the optimal size of a bird flock. Basically the relationship of like the time a bird spends scanning for danger, fighting amongst each other, and the time they spend feeding, all those relationships determine flock size. Uh, so the more birds there are, the less time you spend feeding because there's less food. The more birds there are, the less time you spend scanning for predators because everybody else is looking out. Mm -hmm. The more birds there are, the more time you spend fighting each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense. Yeah. Um, a study in 2003 showed that in quail coveys, mm. uh, there is a an optimal size of a covey. So if you're unfamiliar, quail coveys are something that forms specifically in fall and winter. So they'll hang out together in the fall and the winter. Uh, this study was done in Kansas, and they found that the range of the size was two quail to 22 quail. That is such a Huge range. range. <laughs> so many. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And they found in the study that larger coveys uh, had reduced individual vigilance so every bird didn't have to spend as much time looking out for danger mm -hmm. there was increased group vigilance faster detection of predators and they spent more time in exposed feeding areas mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they had more yeah. people looking for danger people quail <laughs> <laughs> however they found that individual survival was lower in small coveys and larger coveys mm -hmm. and the optimal covey size is only 11 quail Interesting. Right in the middle. Right yeah. in the middle. Uh, they actually found that in larger coveys, the uh, quail had lower weights because there was more competition for food. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And in coveys smaller than two, <laughs> predation is probably an issue. <laughs> probably so, yeah. 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 <laughs> A little bit less time mm -hmm. that you could spend looking out for danger. Right. Uh, speaking of, okay, speaking of the predator avoidance benefit of flocking, um, this may be a stupid question, but okay. Red winged blackbirds, obviously, as we said, famously defensive, will pick fights with things that are so much larger than themselves. Totally. Um, do they display a, like, do, do they, will they attack as a flock if there is a predator? Like, you know, cause they're like colonial birds sometimes do that. Mm hmm if there's something like messing with the group, then they all kind of like mm -hmm. go after it. Is that something red winged blackbirds have been um, observed doing? Because again, that's I, a like, great question. I don't, I don't know that I've ever like s like sat and watched a winter flock for. Yeah, I don't think I've ever personally seen flocks of red winged blackbirds attack things, but mobbing behavior in flocks is pretty common, and depending on the like, species involved, mm -hmm. um, because it's really good to number one cause a commotion because that mm -hmm. draws more attention to the danger mm -hmm. and you know the straight up bullying can just make the danger leave obviously um so i'm not sure about red wing blackbirds but it is a huge advantage of flocks uh one of the biggest uh safety nets of having a large flock has to do with just making it harder for you as an individual to get caught. I think that's probably yes. more yeah. the strategy of red-winged blackbirds. The diffusion of risk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And obviously the closer to the center of the flock you are, the smaller your risk is. Mm -hmm. uh, and we do see that uh, flocks, when they're in danger, tend to be a lot tighter. So mm -hmm. they'll like fly in a closer formation. So when you see those murmurations of birds, if you see them kind of like clo close up and become a tighter formation, they might be perceiving some sort of danger or 
there might be a false call going through the flock and they're all just like, oh, oh no. Uh, <laughs> but when they're safe, they can be in much looser formations. And that's, you know, gotcha. similar, harder to pick them off mm-hmm. behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so safety in flocks is a huge, important thing. And not only mobbing and, you know, the formation itself, but warnings alarm alarm calls things like that are useful in flocks it seems kind of risky to be the bird that blurts out when there's danger um but obviously we see this in a lot of other animals too where you know the benefit is that everybody's doing the same thing and Mm -hmm. the more attention you can grab uh the less likely that predator is going to be successful Mm -hmm. some birds don't even use alarm calls uh they'll use other signals like head bobbing Mm -hmm. if you watch a flock of ducks or geese instead of giving (laughs) alarm calls they will head bob to communicate danger and so you know if you see a bunch of ducks about to take off they'll often be like swimming away and like head bobbing like oh man (laughs) look at that guy he's coming (laughs) Yeah. So uh, that's how they will, you know, sound the alarm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are birds that take advantage of, you know, uh, alarm calls and uh, sort of cry wolf <laughs> if they want other birds to leave for a minute and give them the space to mm-hmm. eat more food. Uh, there have been <laughs> observations of like mixed flocks of sparrows where a bird will kind of do a false alarm and the other birds will scatter and it'll like gorge down a few seeds. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, but there's, you know, disadvantages to calling wolf too many times. Obviously yeah. we all know the adage and that's certainly true for wild birds too. So it's not a great strategy all the time. Mm-hmm. That's so fun. I wonder if there's any birds. So there's the birds that cry wolf. I wonder if there's any birds that just like refuse to call and they're just like waiting for their partner to like flush before they do. You know, they're like, I'm going to be selfish. I'm just going to hope really hard that coyote doesn't get me before <laughs> Bob calls first. <laughs> I mean, probably, right? Like there's got to be variation in the behavior. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm sure there's some birds that are more likely to sit tight and not sound the alarm than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we see overall that birds tend to cooperate because that's the primary advantage of being in a flock. Sure. (laughs) I also want to point out feeding in flocks because, okay, yeah, they're all fighting over food, um, but it is advantageous to find food by being in a flock. Um, Birds that, you know, are chasing down their food can have an advantage if you're following other birds that are also trying to hunt things if a prey animal flushes then they can swoop in and take advantage of that so Mm -hmm. that is a strategy some birds use uh this is not kansas specific but i uh but ground hornbills in Africa will walk in a line across a field Mm. to flush out prey um (laughs) To catch insects specifically, mm-hmm. uh, which is ironically a method that grassland bird biologists use to find <laughs> those birds. So, uh-huh. you know, that's pretty fun. Amazing. <laughs> uh, also, there's just so much information sharing that happens in a flock. There have been experimental studies showing that, uh, for example, uh, experiments show that titmice in captivity, if there's four of them, they will find more hidden food together than they would alone. Nice. Just in a small group. like Yeah. Even a small number of birds, mm-hmm. there can be a big advantage to having more eyes searching out and more cooperation and more information sharing. It's yeah. Fun. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Teamwork. Yeah. Teamwork. <laughs> yes. Another important part of winter flocks is that these flocks are 
frequently mixed species flocks. Mm. So usually what happens is there's like a nuclear species in North America. A really great example of that is chickadees and titmice. And this nuclear species attracts other birds. If there's woodpeckers in the area, if there's like sparrows, if there's, you know, just anybody nearby, even crows can get involved sometimes. Um, they, those follower species will just kind of join up with the nuclear species when they get the opportunity and uh, work together across species. Um, obviously, there's a lot of benefits to this. And uh, one of the main ones is that you get this sort of advantage of having a flock without having to share your resources or your space with your own species quite as much. Okay. So, that you know, wood yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like a woodpecker is going to be doing different stuff and looking for different stuff than right. a titmouse but they still then get to spend less time searching for danger. Um, this has been proven experimentally. Like we know downy woodpeckers spend more time eating and less time looking for danger when they're in a mixed species flock. And these mixed species flocks can be so advantageous that there's even in Central and South America completely unrelated species that co-evolve the same colors to promote group cohesion in a mixed Ooh. species flock. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Like in breeding plumage or just like they're non-breeding like winter? Um, like, yeah, they're, they're uh, breeding plumage. They're non-breeding plumage like all season. That's yeah. crazy. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Makes me wonder if like North American species that flock up do similar stuff because a lot of them yeah. are like, you know, black and white and yeah. have those sorts of things going on. Like is that also some co-evolution mm -hmm. of, you know, yeah. mixed species flocking? I don't know. Amazing. Pretty cool. The little brown birds look alike on purpose. LBBs. True. Yeah. yeah. A little less uh, standing out there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, pretty cool social mimicry. And uh, that's the kind of stuff you have to look forward to in winter. You've got a bunch of different birds all gathered together and lots of chances to see them. Um, in grasslands, you'll see blackbirds, obviously, horned larks, lapland longspurs, waterfowl. <laughs> Mm -hmm. sparrows waxwings woodpeckers mm -hmm. all kinds of birds taking advantage of little microhabitats all around mm -hmm. so some of my very favorite birds are only here in the winter which makes me sad because i don't like going out in winter but they do motivate me to take winter walks uh i was just going to remark that nicole is insane for not liking to go outside in winter <laughs> it is wow. the superior time to experience nature it's calm. The weather is great. Uh, you know, it's like a nice, restorative, quiet, contemplative experience being in nature in winter and not, uh, you know, dealing with uh, sweating constantly just by walking out your front door like you, you know, just like opened the dryer too soon, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Extremely advantageous. And that's a really good point, Nicole, because, yes, it is your best chance to see a lot of birds. Like there's birds out in winter that you will not see in the summer. Yeah. I have a list of them. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. let's go. <laughs> ducks, geese, gulls, and loons. Whoa. Nice. Yeah, I know what you're saying. We have ducks all year, Rachel. No, we don't. You, If you think that, you're insane because like we have maybe two or three species at best, right? Yeah. In the winter, we have the entire roster of ducks yes. there's so many there's like 14 i don't actually know the real number but there's like a lot of duck species out there oh, yeah. you can see sea ducks yeah. in kansas mm -hmm. fantastic um a lot of big birds of prey <laughs> that people like to look out for 
Best time to see them is in winter. Only time to see some of them is in winter. Mm-hmm. Northern Harriers, Eagles, Rough-Legged Hawks, Red-Shouldered Hawks, Sharp-Shinned Hawks, which yeah. are not here during the summer, mm-hmm. and Shorter Dowls and Prairie Falcons yeah. are more likely to be seen. So, you know, get out there. Yeah. Yellow-bellied sapsuckers, not here in the summer. Go outside and look at woodpeckers. Yes. I don't care if you think you see them all year. Go outside. <laughs> Kinglets and creepers and winter wrens. Mm-hmm. Not going to see those all summer. Hermit thrushes, mountain bluebirds, solitaires. Mm-hmm. Better go out in the snow if you want to see those guys. Yes. <laughs> Gotta do it. Purple finches, pine siskins, long spurs of multiple species, and also lots of little rare vagrant birds that get lost from the arctic that sometimes dribble down into our region gotta look out for them Mm -hmm. and may i point out Mm -hmm. finally that this is the only time of year to see a lot i would say most of our sparrows so you know you're sitting here thinking oh little brown birds like no they're not even here in the summer okay so like calm down go outside look at them savannah sparrows juncos all of the zonotrichia species that's our Mm white-throated um uh harris's sparrows all of those guys are not here fox sparrows american tree sparrows they're only here in the winter so you see those winter bird feeders and you're like wow boring birds no that's the only chance you have to see them go outside and look at them yeah. Also, you get to see some really cool, unique bird behaviors, mm-hmm. like your towhees that are around. Spotted towhees, by the way, yes. more common in winter here. Yes, very um, pretty. You get to see them like there's leaves on the ground, right? So they do like fun little scratchings down yes. in the leaves. It's a really fun behavior. We have like charted out how they're able to do it. They like pop up in the air and they like scooch their little legs backwards. Yes, and then they'll be like, Ooh, "What's there?" It's very cute. It there's so much my... rustling in the leaves, and it's all birds. All the, all the rustling in the leaves is birds. <laughs> That's one of my uh, actual favorite birding memories: is spotted towhees after like a fresh snow, Ooh. and they were just out like in the like slightly you know snow dusted leaves and just doing their like, you know, yeah! like yeah. Oh my god! And you know really what? Really lovely. Because they're all in flocks during the winter, they're a lot easier to stalk because they're just hanging out in the bushes and they're less afraid of you because they've got all their buddies around all watching out for danger. So they feel more bold and it's easier to stalk them. And there's no leaves. (laughs) It's the best. It's true. (laughs) Very conspicuous. Yes. Easy to sneak up on. Yeah. Yeah. The only downside is that it's cold out, but like... Not a downside. Again, no. I cannot stress that enough. <laughs> that is the main draw of winter birding for me. <laughs> well, and... you get to wear like you know, you get to wear a, a nice sweater. You mm-hmm. know, put on yeah. a cozy scarf, mm-hmm. get a warm drink, you know, warm beverage, and oh just God. you know, live your best life. Okay, you don't have to worry about mosquitoes. Oh my God, all this that's nonsense. So true. Yeah, like just you're great. Yeah, I guess poison ivy is still out there and still a problem, but you know, whatever, just that's you're fine. fine. And there yep. are, are technically still ticks in the wintertime yeah. because, you All right, know, we don't need to get into the <laughs> Right, but the point is, it's way, way better. Okay? It's way, way better. There's definitely way less ticks. Yeah, that's We're going to freak the entire audience out no. that there's ticks out in winter. Well, I do want them to know how hard it is for ticks to die because, yeah. <laughs> like, they are extremely cold hardy. But yeah. anyway, that's a we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about birds. And we're officially mm. in a different hardiness zone now because it doesn't get as cold as it used that's to. That's very mm. true. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But Back to those, birds. Yep, okay. <laughs> anyway, so those of you who are a little bit like, oh, I don't out in the cold or 
whatever. Or if you're like, oh no, I'm like, okay, I have one tip that will help you get out there more and that's wear wool Mm -hmm. against your skin. Yes. Because if you wear cotton, you might get kind of damp. And uh, that's just like the best way to keep yourself comfortable when you're outside. Like whether you're just moving so much that all your warm sweaters are making you sweat or you're out in the snow and it's getting a little like damp, just don't wear cotton. Mm-hmm. Wear, yeah. wear wool, which is, you know, superior anyway. So Indeed. <laughs> there you go. Problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, so quick complaining. <laughs> <laughs> just go outside. <laughs> And if you really don't want to go outside, at least put up a bird feeder. We'll talk about bird feeders at the very end. Yes. Um, Yeah. So then you can get all your good winter birds uh, in in the winter from the comfort of your kitchen or whatever. (laughs) Great. Um, Winter is also the time for one of the most important counts of the year, which is the Christmas bird count. Mm. Christmas season. Forget about Santa and presents. It's time to (laughs) count birds. It is the yearly (laughs) census of birds in winter are there breeding bird surveys yeah i guess but what yes when... <laughs> there definitely are so yeah no about? no okay. there for sure are yeah there's there's breeding birds surveys. Seems... They're, they're very important it's a weird thing to deny the existence no of i wasn't fire. denying the existence i was just minimizing its importance okay just oh, okay. kidding mm-hmm. but that's i shouldn't do that because it is a very important survey um but the christmas bird count isn't also a very important survey and it is a citizen science survey which makes it much more exciting for birders it takes place from december 14th to january 5th and they started back in 1901 which means at least in the eastern united states we have like 120 years of data yeah gathered from birds in winter and uh all that data has been digitized now so if you go to the audubon website you can view annual summaries of birds dating back to 1901 the scientific studies that have been published from that data, maps tracking trends of species for every decade across their range. Uh, it's kind of amazing the amount of information we've gathered about birds from these Christmas bird surveys. And, you know, we've talked about this before in the Harris Sparrow episode, <laughs> but it is the only time that some birds like Harris sparrows even get documented because they haven't been able to get them on breeding bird surveys. Breeding birds are harder to observe. Yeah. So Christmas bird counts are really important censuses. Especially Harris sparrows. Yeah. 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 Well, aren't they the one who's like breeding grounds was so extraordinarily remote that it was not even discovered until fairly recently yeah like in the in within the, decades yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. uh in the so, subarctic yeah mm-hmm. and we still have yet to have a successful breeding survey of them so yeah. all of our data about that species comes from christmas bird counts nice which Insane. is wild <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you're unfamiliar with the christmas bird count basically from midnight to midnight <laughs> on the day of the count everybody gets together and counts birds yes. they count species and numbers so if you happen to have a flock of like hundreds of geese or ducks you sit there with a scope and you count every single one now you can make estimates you make estimates yeah for sure Mm. (laughs) yeah you make estimates you look for individual species It, it all happens in a circle that's got a 15 mile diameter and every single bird in the circle is counted to the best of your ability they also will include birds that are seen were observed uh, within three days on either side mm-hmm. of the date. And those birds will be counted as like seen in the area, 
but not on count day so that if there's some species that didn't get detected on the count day, they can have them on the list. And there's actually been some pretty shocking information that's come out of Christmas bird counts. For example, uh, the IUCN red list uh, listed common grackles as near threatened in 2018 based on CBC data. Yes. Wow. That is... That is actually shocking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is actually shocking. They found uh, analyzing CBC data. I actually listened to a podcast from the American Birding podcast. That's the name of the podcast um, <laughs> where they uh, Nate Swick interviewed the scientists who did this study. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, that was a, a pretty shocking discovery. And analyzing the data, their populations had declined uh, like 50%. So, wow. Is this a bias in sampling area though? Because mm. what if more people are doing Christmas bird counts in like parks and like <laughs> and not a parking lot <laughs> and not parking lots? Yes. That's, like... oh, that's, a, that's a really good, that's a really good point. And I think like our bias is showing here because Kansas yeah. is a, an area where their population has increased slightly. So they seem more common to us because they are technically more common here I'm in sure. Oklahoma. Um, but across the entire range of them, there's a marked decline. So, uh, and you know, people who do counts uh, make a point to try and find all of those locations. Like, sure. if there's certain parking lots where a lot of birds are, they'll count them. Because um, <laughs> I know I've been on counts where you know people go to Canada Goose hangouts mm-hmm. um, because you know people take these counts very seriously they take yes. their little patches very seriously absolutely and uh while they are definitely trying to get rare species they're also trying to do like a pretty you know solid census of where the birds are yeah, yeah. and so. not just taking yeah not being careful not to just ignore the hundreds of robins or the hundreds of geese no you want yeah. an accurate picture of what's there exactly yes. for sure and uh with cbc data not only do we have bird information but we have birder information mm-hmm. so they're able to account for like how many people were surveying that year mm-hmm. how many routes did they take and that sort of like sampling bias too nice. um other surprising finds uh house sparrows and starlings have had extremely pronounced declines too according to cbc data um really yeah with like even more pronounced than like birds that we consider to be more rare <laughs> than house sparrows and starlings mm. uh so that's you know pretty interesting and like there's every bird is more rare yeah than, right than, exactly than, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh-huh. they're like the most populous birds on earth yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah so that's you know pretty amazing and uh you know there's studies trying to look at like is it because of land use is it because of like um, habitat preferences changing mm-hmm. in birds. Like, there's all sorts of ways to analyze this data, but you know, we're still trying to figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, also, mm-hmm. last year, uh, northern bobwhites and loggerhead shrikes were pointed out as being some of the steepest declines Oof. in most regions. And uh, officially, from last year's count, like even their former strongholds they're now seeing marked declines in those species. And we don't even understand why loggerhead shrikes are declining. Um, But that's something that CBC compilers are aware of and trying to figure out. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You know what makes me angry? What? (laughs) (laughs) That grackles can get attention from the IUCN, (laughs) but prairie dogs can't. (laughs) That is kind of wild. Well, there's no CBCs for prairie dogs. Yeah, nobody cares. Yeah, maybe you should start a Christmas prairie dog count. 
Well, do it on it, Boxing Day or something. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be hard in the middle <laughs> of winter. <laughs> They're all hiding. That's true. Mm. Well, we just need to, you know, get people rallied behind them the way people rally behind birds. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> what are we thinking? <laughs> Tell you're us. thinking, wow, it sure is nice to go outside in a nice, warm, cozy sweater. Yes. And spend like a few hours outside. But like, how do birds get through winter? <laughs> <laughs> I can see it in your eyes. You were both mm -hmm. thinking that for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you're in luck because I have compiled a lot of really interesting information about how <laughs> birds manage to get through winter in harsh conditions yeah. outside. Are you ready? So yes. ready. Number one, they have feathers. Whoa. Whoa hold on. <laughs> Back up. <laughs> I know. I know. Shocking. Okay. But actually, um, feathers are really good insulators, both in hot and cold. And like to this day, down from ducks and geese is still the most efficient insulation known to mankind, natural or synthetic. Dang. Wow. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, it does lose all of its insulating properties if it gets wet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you have like a duck down sleeping bag, don't get wet. Mm -hmm. um, but good news, if you're a bird, you are brrr, waterproof. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> nice. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's yeah, a great that way to stay not cold in winter is mm -hmm. to not be wet in yeah. winter. Nice. And uh, water resistance is something that all birds have in common, not just ducks and geese and things mm -hmm. that are in the water. Do you know how birds are waterproof? Yes. How? Uh, they're, uh, they, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hold <Yeah>. on. Uh, <laughs> um, well, they can preen their feather surfaces, right, to be like relatively solid and impermeable. But True. also, like, they're, they produce, like, certain sorts of, like, hydrophobic uh, oils that they preen with as well. True. Is that part of it? And they're just also, um, Nicole, you were saying? <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, yeah, they, they smear nasty oils and dusty shit all over their <laughs> bodies. Oh. <laughs> well, you guys are kind of wrong because oh, okay. while those things do contribute to uh -huh, waterproofing uh -huh. in birds, it is not wow. the reason that birds are waterproof. Okay. So prepare to have your minds blown. Okay. Bird feathers are basically Gore-Tex mm -hmm. in the sense that it is the structure mm -hmm. of the feathers that prevents water from going through. I feel like that's yes. what I was saying. I mean, <laughs> the beginning part was definitely that. Yeah. That's just what just I was less fancy at. words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's specifically because like feathers have uh, little barbs on mm -hmm. them that mm -hmm. keep the feathers all locked into place and like zip up and everything. So the spacing of the barbs is big enough that... Uh, like, w sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's the spacing of the barbs is tight enough that water cannot flow through it mm -hmm. or stick to the surface. So that's basically how Gore-Tex works too, is that the spacing, it, it's like structurally spaced out in a way that like water can't get through it or like doesn't stick to the surface either. Mm -hmm. And water birds have even tighter spacing of the barbs which makes it even more waterproof. And that also makes the feathers stiffer. So if you, you know, have ever found a goose feather on the ground and you've picked it up and, you know, run your finger <laughs> over it, like they're very stiff. Mm -hmm. That's because of the Gore-Tex-E pattern being nice. a little bit tighter. Is yes. this an example of 
not biomimicry, but where we look at something and we're like, wow, nature did it really cool. So we're mimicking it in what we make. I honestly don't know, but I'm going okay. to say yes. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Sure. Yeah. What, what is the word Probably. for that? Um, bioengineering. Mm, Isn't yes. that how mm. that sounds called? right? Well, I don't yeah, know. That, that feels like it could be something else too. That I could don't also know. be something else. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> bioengineering mimicry. There. Yep. All right. Nice. Um, now, can you think of a bird that does not have stiff feathers and has very soft feathers? Yes. Yeah. An emu. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, that's okay. Yeah. I was Correct. thinking more like owls. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just thinking of like the fluffiest bird I could think of. No, that's yeah. good. I yeah. like that your brain went there. Uh, I'm sorry that my uh, question wasn't <laughs> clear enough. But yeah, owls have pretty soft feathers and that's like a silencing adaptation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It also means that owls are very much not very water resistant mm. so they do get wet more often than other birds mm. so that's why owls tend to hang out in really sheltered areas when they're roosting they find mm. a nice little overhang they'll hang out yeah. in barns they mm. aren't Cavities. waterproof so they gotta be sheltered owls, nice. owls do look real pathetic when they get wet yeah <laughs> yeah they do <laughs> Uh, and that's why. Uh, also important to note, uh, birds grow more feathers in the winter, mm-hmm. which is wild. Songbirds have about 1,800 feathers in the summer, and they add about 600 extra downy feathers in the winter. So if birds look a little bit more poofy, they are totally poofing themselves up, but they also just have more poof. So that's why. That's not that just your brain. Yeah. I had no idea. So like the tracts, uh, their tracts of feathers have space for the extra feathers. They just yeah. don't grow them in the summer. Correct. And so when they put on their like winter plumage, they're extra insulated. Yeah, it's like having vents in the summer. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, true. And then they close in the vents in the winter. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Fascinating. Um, also, obviously, in extreme cold, uh, birds will reduce their activity and just stay in sheltered areas. But to sort of like increase the sleeping bag vibe of their bodies uh they'll poof out their feathers to trap extra heat and then they'll tuck their legs and and beaks into their feathers to reduce heat loss and it's kind of like just like getting in your little downy sleeping bag and zipping it up all the way up to your nose no amazing (laughs) good stuff now There is a problem with being a bird, which is that some parts of your body are exposed to the air. Mm -hmm. For example, your beak and your legs. Yes. Right. So birds have a way to deal with this and not just die or get frostbite on their legs. Mm -hmm. Um, First of all, they have something really uh, cool built into their legs called counter... Let me start over. Yep. They have countercurrent heat exchange occurring in their legs, which is a great adaptation for heat loss. And Alan's nodding like he understands. Nicole, okay. have you heard of countercurrent heat exchange? Is it like ostrich necks? Or no? Why? I don't oh, okay. uh, Probably it's, not. <laughs> th- this, it happens in a lot of different animals. Yeah. It's like in, in whale tongues, you know, mm-hmm. anything that's like taking in. Uh, has a massive cold exposure. Uh-huh. Yeah. They typically tend to find this. Okay. And it's like an anatomical um layout of arteries and veins yeah Yeah. uh so basically what happens is uh 
in, for example, a duck's legs or any bird's legs, but, you know, in ducks, like their feet might be dunked in ice cold water, like yeah. literally ice water, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens is um, the blood vessels are arranged in such a way in their legs that the blood leaving the body uh, that's nice and warmed up from their body is actually exchanging heat with the cold blood coming back into the body from the ice water. So you're obviously losing body heat as the blood goes out into the legs, but mm -hmm. the heat is lost into the blood returning so that it's warming that blood back up and they don't suffer heat loss to the environment as much. It keeps the heat as close to the body core yeah. as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. So kind of awesome. It's also true that uh, – so, I mean, I – You've seen birds tuck their beaks into their feathers. That's pretty common behavior in winter because that'll just, you know, fluff up the beak. Because heat loss is occurring through the beak as well, obviously. Um, so tucking your beak into your feathers will stop heat loss from occurring. But it's also true that birds in colder climates uh, sometimes have smaller bills and feet to reduce exposure. And I'm not just talking about species. Like, there's some species... Puffins, giant beak. Nobody really knows why that's not causing them to lose a tremendous amount of heat. Um, <laughs> uh, but in something like a song sparrow, there's a lot of variation in their range and a lot of variation in their beak and feet size. And it turns out that song sparrows further north have smaller beaks and feet than <laughs> song sparrows in the south. And that's probably yeah. an adaptation to prevent more heat loss. That's Very true. Cute. There's a word for this. Hang on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <sighs> I got to remember... Damn, I forgot the word for this, but Aww. there is a word for like the, the like the you know that allometric relationship of like mm -hmm. oh body parts get smaller in the northern yeah. range of things yeah. or like arctic fox legs. Yeah, tiny. very tiny. tight to their body. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, totally. Uh, red poles are a bird example that I think of too. Like they're a very arctic little finch, and their feet are basically non-existent. They kind of have like <laughs> they're like the hummingbird of sparrows in terms of their like leg to body ratio. Like they their legs are just barely there. They're very difficult to band <laughs> compared to other sparrows. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that is a really helpful trait that they have. Now I have a few more ways that birds get through the winter. And then I want to tell you guys about bird feeders. Mm -hmm. um, but these extra little ways are just kind of delightful and they make me smile. So obviously getting through a cold night is a little bit harder than just getting through a day, right? Uh, did you know that small birds normally, not just in winter, but normally, lose about 10% of their body weight every night while they're sleeping? Yeah, that's crazy. That is insane. <laughs> Um, so it's very costly to sleep at night as a little bird. And a lot of smaller birds like kinglets can enter torpor overnight, which is basically like temporary mini like hibernation. Mm -hmm. um, they let their body temperature get lower and uh, they slow down their body functions and they can use that to sort of get through a, an extra cold night mm -hmm. uh, without losing more than 10% of their body weight. They can lose up to 30% without having serious consequences, but then they'd have to, you know, mm -hmm. re-energize in the morning. Small birds, going back a little bit more to cooperation, we mentioned that there's like a lot of cooperation in birds in the winter compared to normal. 
when it's very cold. That's also true. And uh, many small birds uh, might even take shelter in empty woodpecker holes. Uh, they've documented up to 12 different little birds in a pile inside a woodpecker <laughs> nest. Um, <laughs> so when you're out on your winter birding walks, if you see any little sparrows or birds that have like bent tail feathers or slightly like askew tail feathers, they may have spent the night being the bird at the bottom of a pile. <laughs> so look out for that. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, that's so nice. Um, and of course, birds that have access to things like trees to shelter from uh, will, you know, shelter on the side of a tree that has less wind on it. Mm -hmm. Brown creepers are known to roost communally, and they will form a little circle with all their heads together. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very cute. Yes. And, of course, for Good grassland thing. birds that are out in open fields, um, it's very difficult to, like, find real shelter. So if it's a really windy or snowstormy sort of day, uh, they will find shelter somewhere and they'll all point their little beaks in the direction of the wind so they can <laughs> use their aerodynamic bodies to let as much of that cold wind just sail right past them instead of buffeting them oh. in a winter storm. Nice. Question. Yes, ma'am. Do brown creepers roost just on the side of the tree? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> cute little guys <laughs> weirdos <laughs> creepers are kind of weird <laughs> i mean i love them like Me it comes too. from a place of love and like i know i've seen them you know be bopping up the side of a tree but i never thought that they would just roost just lock like it in. yeah just mm -hmm. okay yeah i mean they, they might take shelter in woodpecker holes yeah, and stuff sure. like that too but yeah i mean they're very well camouflaged so you yeah. might as well just like you know <laughs> cling to the tree and just hang out there wild <laughs> <laughs> um so that's uh all i have for you on how they survive the cold um it's nice to be a bird out in the winter oh. don't they also like they experience significant like physiological changes like in their internal anatomy as well don't they during mm -hmm. the winter time like uh their hearts are, well like it's they do that for migration too like yeah, everything kind of like shifts around like some organs <laughs> get much larger yeah um does yeah. that happen a lot in the winter like the hearts get bigger and like absolutely uh so like a, some of their well all of their reproductive organs will atrophy during the winter so that mm -hmm. reduces weight for migration and continues to be true during uh the winter time um so there are significant physio physiological shifts. Um, of course, they put on a lot of extra fat during migration, and a lot of birds will burn through that on their way to winter grounds, um, but some of it might linger into winter. Uh, and, you know, we don't really think of fat as being like a lightweight energy storage solution, but fat really is like a lightweight way to store energy compared to sugars and things in your blood. So, For sure. Um, birds uh, will try to stock up on fat and that's stored in really weird places like in the like clavicle yeah, <laughs> nook yeah. you know like that little dip you have in your collarbone like <laughs> that gets in birds it gets full of fat and you can like see it if you have a bird in your hand yeah the bubble yeah um, so yeah yeah there are physiological changes and some birds you know change their coloration too um, a lot of birds 
we'll have a second molt during the winter and we'll take advantage of that second molt to completely change their color. Things like goldfinches will turn into a much drabber shade of olive than that bright lemon yellow we're used to seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not only growing 600 new feathers, they're growing like an entire new body's worth of feathers and uh, <laughs> blending in a little bit better. I just think it's neat. Yeah. Like how, like you get teeny tiny songbirds that weigh like an ounce. <laughs> But they're just like they'll be extremely active on the absolute coldest days of the year. Oh yeah, just bouncing around in the snow. Like it's it's mm-hmm. so just the adaptations there are really fascinating. Mm-hmm. It really is, and uh, in bad weather, that's honestly a really good time to look for birds. I don't know. It was raining the other day, and I went out and took a walk and saw so many more birds than I've been like taking walks like every day. And on the nice days, like. I mean, there were a few birds around, but on the rainy day, mm-hmm. it was just bird city. It was nothing <laughs> but birds out and about moving around, like actively during the rain. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of my favorite Christmas bird count memories involve like birding in a straight up snowstorm where we're seeing just so many great flocks of birds. And there's like so much activity, fox sparrows, wax mm-hmm. wings, everybody out moving around in a snowstorm. Like they don't care. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, they're still doing stuff. So... Yeah. Very cool. It's easy, much easier to be a bird in the winter than a person. I did take a walk yesterday after you said like, man, the birds are really birding. So I did like go out there and uh, just all geese. That's all I found. Like there's, I I did, uh, there was like a hundred geese that landed like on the trail in front of me as I was walking. So I was like, oh boy, (laughs) gotta gotta push through this. (laughs) Yeah. But they were fine, you know. Yeah. And you know what? Like speaking of geese, you know, I said that there's like a million more duck species in the winter. The same is true for geese, but like not a million more, like four. Uh, You can find other (laughs) goose species out there. There's snow geese and Ross's geese and things like that. Mm -hmm. Ross's geese look like snow geese. So you have to kind of look hard but you know you can find all kinds of good waterfowl out there and uh yeah geese are neat yeah yeah waterfowl birding is like if you're new to birding Mm -hmm. and you just want to see like a bunch of birds like winter waterfowl birding is a good way to do it you can see some Mm -hmm. really cool stuff yeah and the best thing about it is that they're like usually all in one place so you can just kind of hang out Mm -hmm. find a nice little sheltered area get a scope or binoculars out and just like scan the same flock of birds for like an hour and see so many different species like if you stare at one long enough you might notice a loon hanging out in a crowd like Mm -hmm. it's really cool even in you know kansas uh winter storms and uh well actually during migration too you know like storms will blow birds all over the place and you'll get weird stuff popping up in the winter so uh yeah i think we went to uh we went to quivira a couple years ago and yeah the waterfowl there were insane at the time Mm -hmm. um it's really fun, you know? You yeah. see so many things all together. Uh, wildly different sizes, also very fun. <laughs> yeah. You see, like, tiny little shovelers and, like, huge canvas backs, and they're just hanging out together. And it's like, yes. whoa, that is, like, three times the duck of this other duck. <laughs> yeah. The scale is wild. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to see a, a bunch of stuff all together at once. Yeah, um, yes. absolutely. It's also true that if birds do get off course during migration and they end up somewhere super weird for the winter, uh they're very likely to just hunker down and just stay there and be like, oops, guess I'm in Massachusetts. And like that, they just spend the winter there. If they find a good spot where they can survive, they'll Mm -hmm. stick around. So, you know, all kinds of good stuff. We'll just be there for your enjoyment. (laughs) All right. Now, finally, we're going to end the note on some bird feeding stuff. Um, I'm not going to tell you how to feed birds because you can just look up articles about that. What I want to do 
is I want to answer some frequently asked questions about bird feeders, mm. concerns that people have. Nice. So first of all, if you're putting up bird feeders and you don't see birds coming right away, don't panic. They'll find it eventually. They probably are just like finding so much food out in nature that, you know, something about the way that they're finding food currently is more convenient and less dangerous than going to your yard. Mm -hmm. And you don't know what they're thinking. But eventually when food supplies begin to dwindle, uh, they'll come to your feeder. So they'll, they'll find you at some point. Calm down. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> great. So I have three questions, and I'm going to ask you guys what you think about the oh. answers. Okay. okay. Oh, God. Question number one. Does feeding birds get them killed by more predators? Does it make them easy pickings mm -hmm. for more predators compared to being out in the wild? I would, say, I would say that while that may be true with mammals and things, like habituating them to food sources that are not natural can be uh -huh. very dangerous for them. Yeah. I would think the that birds are an exception to that. And except if you – well, yeah, but that's my <laughs> – <laughs> I was going to say, if your feeders are popping off so much that you start attracting hawks to your yard, then yeah. that could be a problem for them possibly. But, like, yeah. I think in general it's probably fine, right? I, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I'm sure that there are ways to mitigate that. Like, don't have your bird feeder in the middle of an open field where a hawk could <laughs> swoop in and take them really easily. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, uh, you guys are correct. Yeah. Oh, there... <laughs> no? <laughs> the pressure is insane. Um, but, yeah, studies have shown that predation at feeders is actually lower than in natural settings. So uh, the thought there is that it's that sort of flock mentality of mm. a congregation of birds is going to be able to look out for predators more yeah. even in situations where sharp-shinned hawks or cooper's hawks are stalking the feeders as well it's still a lower predation risk than other places yeah, nice. for the most part however oh God. <laughs> where there's bird feeders uh more babies die <laughs> mm. but that's not like a predation thing that's actually kind of an indirect effect where bird feeders tend to attract birds and chipmunks and things that like mm. to eat babies out of right. nests like blue jays and crows and grackles will murder baby birds in other birds' nests. Mm -hmm. Sure. So that's just sort of an indirect impact <laughs> of having bird feeders around. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Um, but in winter, you know, no babies. That's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Guilt-free. Yes. Okay. Second question. Does having a bird feeder stop birds from migrating? No. There's no way. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's a concern people have, especially with hummingbirds. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. But no, in fact, uh, the opposite is probably true. If there's bird feeders around, they're probably able to stockpile mm -hmm. food reserves yeah. and, like, fat faster, which makes them capable of leaving faster. So, right. you know, it's not going to affect migration. Well, like you just said, if they are starting to really rely on feeders, then in their in the general habitat there may be like slim pickings so that mm -hmm. probably is like motivation to you know yeah, yeah for sure yeah. and that you know means if a weird stray hummingbird shows up in the winter and you've for some reason still got a hummingbird <laughs> feeder out in november uh it's not that your feeder stopped the bird from migrating it's that the bird got blown off course or something and mm. it's like oh thank goodness i've got access to food yeah. and then it'll move on when it's able to right okay also, migration is just not resource-driven primarily. Yeah, There's no. so many other things that... Yeah. Yeah. Literally, that's exactly it. The studies or the all the data shows that um, it's everything else affecting migration except resources. Okay. Sunlight, daylight hours. Mm -hmm. Right. 
whatever. Yes. <laughs> cool. Finally, will your this is a real concern people have. Don't. Will your bird feeder make birds lazy? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, will it stop hmm. birds from doing regular bird things will it make them too lazy mm-hmm. and reliant on your handouts <laughs> <laughs> nicole what do you think i mean i'm gonna say no but uh-huh. I, I like i like to try to you know maybe on the surface this question seems silly mm-hmm. but i mean when you think about like animals being like re-released into the wild mm-hmm. like feeding them after you release them is an actual concern yeah so no, i agree that it is a, a a valid concern to uh, have i think yes. that the the language uh is very funny the way mm-hmm. that it was written about mm-hmm. in some of the books i read <laughs> yeah, yeah. um yeah. but yeah it is a real concern mm-hmm. either way how is this being studied how do you determine a bird's laziness you <laughs> uh-huh. know? uh by looking at survivability oh okay mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah when uh in the presence of habituated birds and then mm-hmm. if you remove the feeders mm, ouch. okay yeah, yeah sounds mean uh, <laughs> a little bit <laughs> but is it I does guess it affect not. them i know there's no way yeah yeah it doesn't affect them at all <laughs> um studies show that even birds that live with feeders like for generations mm-hmm. of birds because the feeder is so consistent um they still only use that like artificial food source for half of their food uh no more than half of their food is coming from the feeder so they're using okay. natural sources even in those uh, instances and uh, studies show that really artificial food is just a supplementation for a natural diet. Mm-hmm. And when feeders are removed, uh, they do find that there is no impact on survival. Birds do just fine. If you've had a feeder out for like a decade mm-hmm. and you suddenly take it away, your birds are going to be fine. It's probably not what you want to hear. You want to think that like you matter to them, but <laughs> the time when it really does matter and does have an impact on survival is in moments of really extreme weather events. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, if there's an ice storm, having a feeder out with access to food can be a matter of life and death survival for For birds. So Mm -hmm. in those extreme cases, that can be a huge benefit that will absolutely affect how birds are able to survive. Um, So don't worry about, you know, birds being affected in your neighborhood. They're going to be okay without you. And if there's an ice storm, Maybe make sure to go restock your feeder so that the birds are able to make it through that event. Yeah. Nice. And uh, yeah, that's the last little tidbit I have about birds in winter. So as you can see, birds are doing a lot in the winter and it's a really exciting time to be paying attention to the outdoors. I know that for a lot of people in like cold climates, especially the winter seems sort of like a dead time of year. Um, but it's an extremely birdy, like thriving time of year if you enjoy feathered friends. So mm-hmm. I encourage you to get out and participate in that enjoyment of nature this winter. That's yeah. right. And don't feel like you need to be like a birding pro to do a Christmas bird count. Like <laughs> all of the birders in your area would be just so ecstatic to have you along and you'll you can get paired up with someone that like you know is experienced and knows the bird calls and stuff like that and yeah. you're gonna have a great time yeah good learning experience yeah. oh yeah. absolutely uh if you're interested in getting involved in a christmas bird count um if you just google christmas bird count your city or mm-hmm. your state uh the autobahn 
chapters or ornithological societies, whoever's running the counts in your area uh, will have something available for you to find online and ways to get in contact with the coordinators and participate in those things. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Cool. And if you just stay home during your Christmas bird count day uh, and count your feeder birds, Mm -hmm. that is also very important. Um, I've, you know... Christmas bird counts in Wichita mm-hmm. often have like spouses or friends of the survey who are sitting at home all day watching the feeder for rarities <laughs> and counting every single bird that shows up in the yard. Yeah. So that's important too. Here's a question though. Yeah. Because like I feel like I have I put out suet blocks uh-huh. and I feel like there is one downy woodpecker <laughs> that just comes by and massacres it like every day. Mm-hmm. How do I know if I'm doing a Christmas bird count that that's the same one the same one or not mm. oh my gosh is this, is this hurting the data um that's <laughs> a good question um i think that uh you just have to use your best judgment i know for a fact uh that when doing bird surveys birds are uniformly undercounted um we know from studies that when estimating flocks of birds estimating individual birds that are coming by throughout the day that we are not counting all of them we tend to underestimate everything so counting the same woodpecker a couple of times isn't going to harm the data at all Uh, in fact you're probably missing more if you don't (laughs) so you know use your best judgment on whether it's the same bird yeah i'm sure that's like yeah accounted for within the models anyway oh for sure yeah yeah. (laughs) cool well thank you rachel this was a real delight and a great topic for winter nature lovers yeah well thank you go outside go outside there's no such thing as bad weather only the wrong clothes right (laughs) oh yeah that's what we say yep don't be a coward like nicole go outside It hurts my bones. <laughs> oh, I had an unrelated thing, but oh. this is, well, it's semi-related. How is the AOU going about renaming birds? Because, like, oh, I want to sure. I want to say, when like, is that gonna happen? yeah, when is that going to happen? And also, are they open to suggestions? I really <laughs> feel like they should rename the Harris Sparrow the Tundra Sparrow or something like that, because I think oh. that'd be really cool. Yeah. And also make it, like... A Exciting. more awesome bird to see in the Great Plains. It's like, yes. that's a tundra sparrow, dude. Yeah. yeah oh, so. that's such a good point. I, so good. I don't know. I mean, surely they're open to suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this Christmas bird count, immerse yourself into the birder world so you can rename all the birds. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, we, yeah. should, we should campaign for bird names that we think would be awesome yes That's oh my gosh yeah if yeah. john oliver can campaign for birds yeah like, <laughs> yeah we, we should be campaigning if for john oliver names. can teach the world what a puteki techie is yes then we can you know get people on board with harris and sparrows yes, yes. you mean tundra sparrows tundra sparrows yeah <laughs> i don't even know who harris was but too bad probably a racist probably probably <laughs> Thank you, dear listener, for joining us on this adventure into winter birds. Uh, Definitely check out the show notes in the description. Check out our website and the social media. Again, if you have two spare dollars to throw our way, we would be forever grateful. And we will catch you again in a month. Bye. Bye.